forever. Dog. Welcome to Public Intellectual. I'm your host, Jessica Crispin. Public Intellectual is a podcast supported by its listeners. So if you would like to become one of these supportive listeners, please go to patreon.com slash public intellectual for all the usual Patreon things like bonus episodes, a blog, a tote bag, etc. It's patreon.com slash public intellectual. A couple of years ago, there was a book that would raise my blood pressure anytime anyone mentioned it, Kate Bollock's Spinster. Having referred to myself as a spinster for many years at that point, I found it offensive that somebody else would cash in on the word. And not just cash in, but sell a unrecognizable version of spinsterhood, one of endless champagne and parties and men and travel and excitement, rather than the general lived experience of spinsterhood, which is one of marginalization and difficulty. One of the reviews that I liked the most was by Brielle Hopper in the Los Angeles Review of Books, where she talked about this difference, the distance between what Kate Bollock was trying to sell, a sort of self-empowerment spinster light version, versus how women who have been unmarried through time have experienced that life. So when Brielle Hopper had a book come out, her new essay collection, Hard to Love, I wanted to talk to her on the subject again about what it's like to live a life that is not the cultural expectation and is a life that society is not necessarily built to help you live. I've noticed a lot of trend pieces about how 2019 is supposed to be the year of the single woman. Um, there are a lot of books coming out about uh, why you should dump him and uh, how to live a happy and fulfilled life as a single woman. But it's always about independence. There's always independence in the title or the subtitle or something of that nature. And I just feel like as well-intentioned as I'm sure these books are, um, it's just the wrong way to be thinking about this issue, which is why I really enjoyed um, the first couple uh, essays in your book, because you talk about this sort of directly. So why is independence, um, I guess, the wrong way to think about um, singlehood? Um, well, I sort of think independence is the wrong way to think about being a person generally, um, regardless of your relationship status. Um, yeah, I mean, I just, uh, everyone is just so dependent on, um, so many things. Um, uh, yeah. And I definitely feel like when I, um, when I started life as a single woman, um, 14 years ago, um, there was just like, no, it was never, I was never going to be able to like do it as an independent person. It was just like not in the cards for me. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I felt as someone who 
really identified as um, as a spinster um, at different times in my life. I just felt like very um, very unrepresented by a lot of the discourse. And I actually I'm excited that 2019 is the year of the single woman. That's like nice timing <laughs> for me. I didn't know that was true. <laughs> finally, um, finally, we're we're gonna be. <laughs> We get our year. Yay. But um, yeah, but I guess I just felt like um, the things that I loved most about um, my relationship status were feeling free to connect um, in a lot of um, in a lot of ways and um, and to celebrate a lot of different kinds of connection. And I just didn't feel like that was the story most people are telling. I think some of that is um, temperamental. I think some of it is political, but um yeah, so I was excited to try to think about writing about life um, from the perspective of like celebrating dependence um, and not seeing that as some kind of like terrible character flaw. Yeah, I think um, I remember us both being horrified when Spinster became sexy, like um, the the campaign to make spinsters sexy. Um, because then it was sort of filtered through this idea of why would I choose one man when I have all of this abundance to mm. choose from, which is not generally the spinster experience. Mm. <laughs> but then sort of um, going into denial about um, actual spinsters in their lives mm. and through through time and history, mm-hmm. um, what that experience has been like, that was really that was really distressing when that started happening. And I think it's going to get worse. <laughs> <laughs> Let's fight it. <laughs> yeah. So, so how, how does, well, first of all, like why has dependence or not why has it, but it's always been sort of, especially in America, why is it such a dirty word? Like why do people freak out when um, the idea of being dependent on somebody Um, that's a super complicated question. Um, I think some of it, um, yeah, some of it dates back to like the declaration of independence. Let's let's deconstruct in this 30 minute podcast, the declaration of independence. But I do feel like just like in terms of if you, if you're thinking about certain kinds of U.S. origin stories, there's definitely a sense of, um, associating maturity as an individual or as a country with not needing, um, not needing other people or, um, yeah, not needing certain kind of like, uh, situations of dependence. I think, um, I'm not going to be able to give a good uh, account of this off the cuff, but like, I think it absolutely has to do with slavery. Um, and the way that, um, independence and dependence have been like figured, in terms of race and gender and dependence is seen as a kind of really um, stigmatized state. And there's a kind of ideal of this independent white, um, uh, often male person who's just sort of seen to like embody um, uh, like virtue. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I think it seems, especially in, in this particular political climate that it's both sort of interpersonal independence, but then also independence from the state, right? Mm -hmm. The sort of denial that you would need anything from the government. Right. Um, And so then resentment that anything that you might give might be given to somebody that is dependent on the state. Right. Um, But 
Yeah. So do you see those two as linked as well? Absolutely. Yeah. And um, I think even just, I'm mean, whatever, like rhetoric around the government shutdown um, and just like thinking about the ways, uh, things people say about people who don't get their paychecks and suggestions that they hustle and scramble and be scrappy and <laughs> um, so, like figuring just like working for a wage as like even that could be like a kind of shameful dependence and some kinds of rhetoric. It's just like really extreme and untroubling. So you write about Ralph Waldo Emerson. Mm-hmm. Um, what what made you bring him into it? Well, I um, in grad school, I dated an Emersonian, <laughs> and that was a really important part of my education as a, as a person. <laughs> <laughs> got to get it out of your system at some point, yeah. So I got to explore, like, both my, and I write about this a little bit in the first essay in the book, but, like, some of my kind of, like, um, uh, like attraction to this idea. Like, I think there's something really appealing, especially like I grew up in a family where there wasn't a lot of, um, financial security and, uh, definitely, um, just the, the idea that someone could just sort of like be self-sufficient and fine, um, just seemed like very appealing to me, but also I had reasons to believe that it was like fraudulent. Mm -hmm. So I think that, um, yeah, like dating an Emersonian helped me realize how superficially this might be appealing. Like deep down, I thought it was like really terrible way to, to, um, live and think about life. And then I also ended up doing, um, graduate work in 19th century American literature. So I got to read all of this kind of like the, a lot of the founding mythology of American individualism and self-reliance and then kind of like angry responses to it, which was like really helpful for my personal formation. Um, yeah. 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 Emerson is a a sort of weird case. Um, and then, you know, Thoreau as well, because obviously, well, I think about this all the time, this sort of pose of these male writers as being very sort of singular and the lone male genius. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they had fucking wives uh-huh. who were cleaning their underwear mm-hmm. and making them food and all this kind right. of stuff, but positioning themselves like desperate to be seen as one whole individual. And I don't know if it's self-delusion or just, um, uh, that they don't realize their dependence on sort of the people around them or if they are faking it. But um, like, <laughs> I, I think, think about it all the time. combination, probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, you know, the the sort of throw going back for dinner parties all mm-hmm. the time and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I got to write um, a little bit in, in my essay about leaning and dependence about how um, there's just like a really distinctive misogynistic um, uh, tone and like a lot of misogynistic imagery and references in, in a lot of Emerson's writing, like not just self-reliance, but also just sort of like the scorn in the way that he talked about, like just domestic life, um, as just something that gets in the way, um, gets in the way of what though? Like, I mean, his male genius or male writing genius, or whatever. Um, uh, s- spirituality, <laughs> <laughs> um, everything that's like the, the, um, the disembodied, um, uh, yeah, disembodied genius and spirit, um, innovation and greatness. Um, yeah. 
Um, yeah, I, there's probably a straight line between the sort of Emersonian desire for a lack of domesticity and, and not being in a body to like guys who drink Soylent, I think. Absolutely. <laughs> Like there's a, there's a way that there, there's some kind of reference that Emerson makes to like the smell of ham where he's just, it's like, he's just trying to create the sense of nausea. <laughs> like, wouldn't it be better if we just didn't have to like eat food? <laughs> I never understood that anyway. It, yeah. The, I, tor, I'm a Taurus rising cancer son. Like food is everything to mm-hmm. me. Um, so I never understood the whole disembodied thing. Yeah. Um, so what does dependence then um, mean to you as a counter to this sort of myth of the independent figure? So something that I write about is that there are, um, there are particular spaces, um, just like very limited spaces in, uh, U S society where dependence is allowed. Um, marriage is one of them. You're allowed to think about your relationship to your, um, to your spouse as a relationship of mutual dependence. Um, uh, team sports, being in the military. Um, the, these are ways where it's like, okay, to kind of like be part of this group of mutual dependence, but these are really, really limited. Um, so I think for me, um, both personally and politically, like thinking about, um, other forms of, uh, dependence or mutual dependence that can be kind of like found, in books and or created in life and or sustained in society um that's been really important and that can um that can be things like just trying to improvise um uh like living arrangements or financial arrangements or uh, familial type arrangements that um do some of the kind of work of these uh these other um, kind of like officially okay forms of dependence, mm-hmm. but outside of this kind of like legally governmentally sanctioned form. I think one of the things that frustrates me about the sort of single woman discourse is that it's all about sort of the emotional state and not the fundamental structures of how a person lives their lives. Mm-hmm. So it's not about, you know, you can be a single woman by being okay with being alone at night and, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Um, but not about how do you create different forms of housing that aren't right. based on the couple, because that's such a dominant form of, of how we arrange or even anticipate the, our housing arrangements is right. based on the nuclear family or the marriage or whatever. Right. Um, so for you, how has that been like moving in and out of these spaces, both relationships and um, being single? How have the sort of structural things been a challenge for you or have, have how has it been good? Yeah, <laughs> there's so much to say. Um, I write a lot in the book about roommates, which I think is like um, uh, a, considering like how important this kind of relationship is in people's lives today. It's like fairly, um, in some ways underrepresented or that, or they're, um, well, I don't know if I should say that there's like friends and golden girls, but, um, <laughs> but I think that it's like, um, this kind of like, uh, domestic arrangements that are also relationships of affection, um, and some kind of like, some kind of life partnership, even if it's not like exclusive and permanent, um, 
I feel like these are often seen as like comic or a phase Mm -hmm. um, rather than a relationship of real substance and meaning. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I've had like uh, really terrible roommate situations, really wonderful roommate situations. I'm currently living um, on my own for the first time in years. Mm -hmm. And it's just like very clear to me that I was not built to live by myself mm-hmm. and I need to, this is like, I'm just going to be continuing to try to like improvise this, um, going forward. But yeah, like, um, uh, like architecture could just be a lot better for this. I, whenever I read anything about, um, there was like a really great essay I read recently in Lit Hub by Amy Rowland that was about a kind of grim Salvation Army hostel that she lived in. But I still had this sense of like wistfulness where I was just like, I would just like to live in a hive. <laughs> <laughs> like all of the like stage door, like whatever, all of these like um, uh, representations of just sort of like collective living arrangements. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents met at a commune and I sort of like was raised with a little bit of nostalgia for that. Um, yeah, so I think... I don't know. I'm I'm going to be trying to like figure this out personally more, but I definitely feel like things like, um, you know, the way that housing is structured, the way that like mortgages or like rental agreements are structured, like all of this could be like better set up for people who are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what is it about living alone that you don't like? I think like there's a, just a very, and I don't want to, um, this is just like temperamental. <laughs> I'm not going to try to, to claim all of this is like good politics. Like some of it is just sort of like, but I think, um, I'm, I lived with a roommate who was an introvert and she had this moment where she, she also had had a dog and she was just like, Oh, like, you're just like, you're just like an animal that prefers to be in a pack. Like, <laughs> And I think that's true. I think I'm just sort of like, I'm not like a lone wolf creature. I just like prefer to like come home to like, um, yeah, to people and like live with them. Um, Yeah. So I think that part of it is just, this is the way that I am as a writer too. I'm not one of those people who can just, who flourishes by like going off in a Therobian way and like, Mm -hmm writing something by myself without distractions, like I would kind of go crazy. Mm. Um, I'm not someone who's always like hankering to be at like some kind of writing residency in a cabin. I just, (laughs) (laughs) I just like really, um, I do better with writing when I can kind of like check in with people as I'm writing or like just hand them a paragraph and be like, what do you think? Mm. Um, So writing is pretty social for me. Um, I get a lot of energy from teaching. I'm just, yeah, in general, I think that, um, like work and life are, are very communal for me. Um, so even though I like reading about this romance of, um, you know, I think there are a lot of like great, there's a lot of great romantic writing about like the odd woman in the city or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and just sort of, uh, the beauty of loneliness. Um, I don't personally like <laughs> strive after it. Yeah, it's interesting that you say writing for you is social because it it goes against and especially in the sort of Emersonian mode of American writing, uh, the the image of the writer is the 
person alone at their mm -hmm. typewriter or whatever. Um, which I think is not how most people actually write, but it, the fantasy is so dominant, yeah. um, which I find bizarre. Yeah. Um, and even people who are like professional writers who have been like doing it for a long time. Um, I think it's still, or at least for me and like some other people that I've talked to, there is sort of a sense that insofar as your own process doesn't resemble that, there's a sense that like, it's not as valid. Yeah. You're doing it wrong somehow. Yeah. As if there weren't a million ways to do everything. Um, which is why I hate those Paris review process interviews <laughs> so much because they're all liars. But anyway, um, yeah, I, I was, uh, I was thinking about, um, the Rebecca Traster book, um, all the single ladies and in it, she talks about her plan had been to, she and her friend both wanted to have children. Um, and so they were going to move in, uh, next door to each other in order to have sort of mutual support and do it by themselves. And then Rebecca Traster got married and moved away and raised a child within a, a very sort of traditional mode. It's she, actually she doesn't the... write about what happened to the friends. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm going to, that's my, you know, I can write that story. <laughs> I'm trying to, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think I it's funny you said that, um, I really like that book, but I also feel like there's a curse of writing books about like being a single woman where it's by the end you're, you're married if you weren't at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> I've yeah. seen it happen like Jesus. over and over. Yeah. So like the spinster book, all the single ladies, like this great writer, Sarah Eckel wrote a book called it's not you about like reasons why people are single. So she's happily married. It's just like a curse. <laughs> <laughs> so I was really worried it would come for me and I would just sort of like find myself like paired off when I wrote this book. Like, thankfully that did not happen. Thankfully. <laughs> um, no, like I'm trying to figure out, um, how to have a kid. Um, this is like one of my, I write about this towards the end of the book. Um, it's one of my goals to try to do it over the next year or two. Mm -hmm. And, um, I just changed jobs in cities. So I'd been living, I was sort of, uh, um, I had a non-permanent, but um, nice, but precarious gig at Yale where I just sort of like every few years I'd be like, is my contract going to be renewed? Mm -hmm. And so it was like, it was a nice life, but also felt very um, not secure. Mm -hmm. And, but I did have this structure built up of just like people who, um, who I loved, who I could imagine just sort of like communally raising a kid with, um, like sharing, um, sharing like meal making and childcare and all of that stuff. And I could really envision how it would look mm -hmm. and then choosing to leave that life and get, a take a more, um, secure job, um, was like, part of me trying to like set myself up to have a family, but now I just have to like totally re-envision what that will look like. So, yeah. Yeah. It, even with, um, the fact that there are again, like a million ways to raise a child. It's like when you are doing it outside of this particular mode of marriage, um, it's like you're on your own as far as how to imagine how that's going to go mm -hmm. because there's just so little 
literature, film, TV, anything about any other mode except for this sort of scrappy, single, exhausted single mom mm-hmm. who's angry all the time or whatever. Right. Um, and Or just sort of like fantasies like the Gilmore Girls where it's just oh, like... Jesus, <laughs> fucking, I fucking hate the I Gilmore mean, Girls so much. <laughs> the, their house, I, I love the Gilmore Girls, but like it, it is no, it's no way, in no way a useful blueprint for how to be a single parent. As someone who actually grew up in a small town, I find Gilmore Girls unbearably offensive. It's <laughs> like, not what it's like. It's so it's much a, worse. It's a show about small towns made by like city people who yeah. had a nice B and B experience. Yeah, once. yeah, yeah. So, Jesus, but um, I, I do, I do love it. It's definitely comfort viewing for me, but it doesn't, it doesn't like provide a path forward in any way. <laughs> no, not in any way. And that's what I find frustrating is that um, by not sort of telling these other stories. Um, and that was what it was, what I found so frustrating about Spencer besides like every other fucking thing about Spencer, uh, the Kate Pollock book, um, was her models for what spinsterhood looked like. were all married women, Mm -hmm. um, and women with money and so on, which is again, like not how spinsters live Mm -hmm. for the most part. Um, so you talk about in in your review um, of of Spinster the sort the women that she could have written about and chose not to. Mm-hmm. Um, can you like who are Spinster models besides like fucking married Edith Wharton that's in the book? <laughs> um, who are models for kind of your life? I mean, the the people. In the in my um, essay about Spencer's, I wrote about a lot of just women who aren't famous, who mm-hmm. I have known and loved, um, who I was just really lucky to, in my 20s, I knew um, my mentors when I was in grad school. Um, I had women who were like 10 and 20 years ahead of me who just sort of gave me a path for thinking about what life could look like. Mm-hmm. That was, um, that's actually like something that I admired and wanted and, um, and like continue to kind of, uh, <laughs> on bad days, I still think about them <laughs> and things that they've, um, taught me. So I think it was less for me. I mean, there are a lot of like, um, in terms of like famous Spencers who like, I love thinking about, um, I think about Louisa May Alcott all the time. I love that she like supported her whole family. Like she was someone who famously had a like, um, transcendentalist father who relied on women to, um, to keep him afloat. Um, so yeah, she taught herself to be ambidextrous because she needed to write twice as much to support (laughs) her. her dad and her sisters and her niece and, um, everyone. Um, yeah. And just sort of thinking she, I love that she has a book called moods and a book called work. And like for a really long time, I've just sort of thought about these as like, you know, the, the, <laughs> the great titles <laughs> of the Spencer's life. Um, yeah. So she, I guess she's sort of like someone that I think about regularly just in terms of, um, having Spencer life as like one of like deep connection to family, um, deep connection to work, um, really like fierce, um, political, um, 
intensity, also like the kind of romance of friendship. Um, so yeah, like she's like my recommended reading for for all things Spencer. Um, yeah, I think about, you know, sort of um, Henry James as being like the queen spinster mm-hmm. of American letters. Um, yeah. But uh, but yeah, that was one of the things, again, that I found offensive in Spencer that the, she talks about portrait of a lady and not the Bostonians or Washington mm-hmm. Square or right. any of the actual Spencer books. If you want, like, it's well, OK, so there are different there are different ways of thinking about Spencer. So I think like in terms of like what I personally like want my own life to look like. Mm-hmm. I don't really aspire to be like Olive and the Bostonians, (laughs) (laughs) but I think, (laughs) but in terms of just like, if you want just like the full on, um, gorgeous glamour of spinsterness, like, uh, Washington square, the Bostonians, the aspirin papers, like James is where to go. Um, also, um, uh, Tennessee Williams has like really wonderful, grotesque spinsters that I love to uh, imagine my life in relation to. Um, and that ju- that they're just so like, um, like reverent and disgusted and appreciative and like, <laughs> <laughs> and like horrifying and like everything you would want. So I think that like, there's something, um, yeah, in terms of just the kind of like power of the figure to um to unsettle and haunt I feel like I really love um James and Tennessee Williams for sure yeah I think about this essay by Freya Stark on the disappearance of the spinster a lot where she writes about how Europe used to be filled with American spinster women um who they were, she called them like the lost daughters, like mm-hmm. the daughters who had to take on the family obligations. Mm-hmm. And then once their parents died, were liberated. And so they all went to Europe <laughs> to just like make watercolors. <laughs> like, and it was That's just blissful. This wonderful, <laughs> and she said she's seeing fewer and fewer of them. Um, and this was like after World War II, I believe. Um, that is just part of American culture that died out, mm-hmm. but it just seemed like, so what a wonderful life to yeah. just like go to just like at 50 to just be like, fuck, I'm going to Italy. I'm just going to do watercolors of yeah. Venetian canals. And I feel like, um, Barbara Penn, um, has like a really, the function of, she does, she does a really good job of like writing about kind of, um, humdrum, overcast like drizzly spinster life with the punctuated by these like incredible like two-week trips to Greece yeah. where you just like eat everything delicious and are like life has meaning and then like you go back to London and it's awful yeah. so I yeah that's yeah. also great too you're taking care of some sort of vicar or something <laughs> yeah for some reason yeah um yeah so um the mode of preparing yourself for um because this was sort of intentional for you to try to create a life outside of the sort of you know romantic paradigm um so what was it that sort of sparked it off for you um besides dating an emersonian yeah i mean i think partly it was just like um in my well i (laughs) it wasn't actually like intentional for me i just sort of like uh I assumed that I would in my like twenties or whatever, I assumed that I would, um, pair off or wanted to, um, and then it didn't happen. And then I had to like come up with something else. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do think now, um, like I, 
I think that like I could imagine myself like getting married or being in a relationship in the future. But I think that I've so I've organized my life in such a way that I don't think it would really change um, change my life that much. Like it just seems very decentered. <laughs> it would just be like there would just be like this other person to be like folded into things, and then I would be folded into their thing. But it's not like it's not like um, my real life is like waiting on this thing or that it needs to happen. Mm-hmm. It's um, yeah, but. Um, Sorry, I forgot what you asked. <laughs> it's not, I mean, I guess I'm just, I'm not actually anti-marriage um, mm-hmm. for myself or for other people. I just sort of feel like having it be so central doesn't make sense to me. And I think it's like probably bad for everyone to have it be so central. Yeah. Yeah. I am a marriage abolitionist. Um, if only because the sort of... Um, the aspect of it, of the state recognizing certain relationships and not others. And then the difficulty of sort of legally creating protections for lives outside of that uh, dominant form, um, I find destructive. Um, And also by abolishing marriage, um, it would force everybody to be creative, Mm -hmm. right? and I know that this is an impossibility and I'm like the only marriage abolitionist who lives on the planet. Um, but, uh, well, I think about it all of the time. <laughs> I actually, I just read your piece on getting married and I thought oh, it yeah. was really, <laughs> um, I like the way that it combined this, like both, the uh, it was like very romantic, especially at the end. Um, and that's sort of that was sort of the final note, but also with this kind of like resistant, um, marriage resistant uh, note as well. Yeah, um, yeah. Getting married has only made it more clear to me that marriage should be abolished um, because of how much easier certain things become that shouldn't be easier, right? So you know, going through this process of, um, of his immigration now suddenly, because just because he met somebody on Tinder and fell in love, like now all of these possibilities open up to it. And I think that's sick. I think that's gross. And the flip side, I had a friend who his job came with great health insurance and he was just like, it's my obligation to marry someone. Like I don't believe in marriage, but it's just like, if I can like get someone else on this awesome health insurance plan, like it's like my, you know, it's like a moral (laughs) obligation to do it ASAP. (laughs) Yeah. I think marriage as a a new form of protest would be interesting. My friend, I was telling my friend uh, that I got married um, and, and she's very against marriage and she's like, well, I married somebody just to live off campus in college. Mm -hmm. Yeah. like, yeah. So, um, I, I, I do think that the spreading of rights through illegitimate marriage, um, is, um, uh, and if the American government is listening to this podcast, my relationship is not illegitimate. Um, <laughs> um uh, we have to think about that all of the time. The, uh, right. the public face of our relationship, which is also disgusting, but, um, but yeah, to me, that sort of funneling of certain rights through the romantic relationship is really bizarre yeah. um, and sort of makes uh, spinsters' lives more um, more difficult. Yeah. And I think, like, I've been, um, it's, like, reminding me of a couple of things. Like, one is that, that I've been sort of saving um, 
whenever I see like, uh, there's this story that was going around recently about like two women in Canada who were not, um, romantic partners, but were sharing custody of a child. Mm-hmm. Um, that was like the biological child of one, I think. Um, but they were just sort of friends who wanted to be co-parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were able to get that legally recognized, I think. And then in California having, um, I think I read about, oh, I want to make sure I get this right. Anyway, something about like being able to have like three legal parents. Yeah. Um, so I feel like there are, there's like certain kinds of, um, legal progress or like windows for ways that this could be, um, better. Um, so I'm trying, I'm just like collecting anytime I see a story like this, I'm just like, Oh, wouldn't that be great? And then there was also this like ridiculous, um, story in, uh, from the UK about two sisters who were raising, co-raising the child of one of them. And then when the, um, the mother, the legal mother wanted to leave the house to the sister, but like, anyway, it was like quite complicated to do it. Whereas if they'd actually, if they'd been just like two random people who just met and got married, it would be like very easy, but because, you know, because they were like sisters, it was almost impossible to, to pass on like custody and property. So yeah. Anyway, it's a mess. But the other thing is just like thinking about, I've, I've just gotten into like other ways to commit (laughs) because I do really love commitment and the romance of, of lifelong commitment. Um, so I've just like been looking for other ways to do that. Yeah. I read a very sort of, um, in, influential on my thinking uh, essay now I'm completely uh, blanking on who wrote it. It was a a sort of legal um, argument that um, marriage contracts should be replaced with parenting contracts, Mm -hmm. um, especially with the instability of marriage in our culture. It doesn't make sense to have the sharing of property and all these other rights done through marriage, but parenting um, absolutely needs that and arguing that anybody, any collective should be allowed to enter a contract to, um, uh, raise children, um, and be, have that responsibility. And then I was thinking of like Sarah Blaffer Hurdy's book about aloe parenting and, and I haven't read it. Oh my God. It's just about like, um, sort of anthropologically how the nuclear family model is is a a total aberration. And historically Mm -hmm. the idea of aloe parents, like unrelated by genetics or whatever, but committed into the raising of this child, um, and how more sort of emotionally stable the children mm-hmm. are and so on. The nuclear family just seems like this horror show that I don't know why we're insisting on doing anymore, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I, um, well, <laughs> I mean, I think that, uh, so my, my own, uh, nuclear family of origin, it's, um, uh, it's looks, um, the permutations change, but like, it's definitely a situation where there are three generations sharing a house and different people like pitching in to raise the next generation. Um, and it, yeah, it doesn't look like a kind of like two, um, yeah, two married people with, um, with a kid in their own home that they own or whatever. Um, 
but it's definitely hard. I mean, there, and there's, there, people are doing this all the time everywhere. It's just that it's seen as an aberration or a dysfunction. Right. Um, and that is like, again, like very much about race and class, um, and, and, uh, like xenophobia sometimes. And yeah, just sort of like, this is, this is not the way it's done here. Yeah. Yeah. Like Donna Haraway's sort of kinship stuff. Um, yeah, it's, to me, it often feels intractable that we're just stuck in this culture that is never going to change. But then think, you know, anyway, I'll, I'll try not to have my apocalyptic pessimism <laughs> and take over. Well, I do feel, I mean, in this, like for me, I think that moving to New York City, which I have just done recently, is like functioning a little bit like, or I realized when I had to like um, sign an oath of allegiance to the New York State constitution which i oh. did without having read it so i hope there's something <laughs> terrible in there <laughs> so you, you now must recognize ralph waldo emerson as your god right <laughs> but i just like it felt very um yeah i'm just sort of like starting a new a new life in my 40s and it felt like very momentous to just sort of like commit to this job that i expect to just have for the rest of my working life and commit to a city and a little bit, a little bit marriagey and um, to choose like the New York city teacher's pension <laughs> and just imagine myself as like a, a pensioner. Um, but also like there's, um, there's free three K in New York as well as free pre-K and I was just like, this is actually like a, like there, there's a way that this, like this commitment is just like not one way. <laughs> there's like something in it for me. And there's a way that this can be sort of like serving some of the functions like me in New York city, like it can serve some of the functions of like a marriage. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.